Nick, I can't believe COVID is still going on. And we also have something called the Delta variant that is basically making all of our numbers go back up again. It's really been a crazy year and a half. I know. And I think one of the things that I'm really happy for is that as I'm like standing in the ante room, getting ready to get all the carb on and going into a room and thinking about like, what do I need to do for this pregnant patient? I have the OBG project resource literally in my pocket on my phone that I can scroll through quickly before I have to put it down and get the gloves on. One of the great things about the OBG project is that you can also subscribe to OBG First, which allows you to create your own bookshelf. It allows you to have all those handy resources right where you want them instead of having to scroll through everything. Chief residents can actually get a free year of OBG First by heading over to our website, creagsovercoffee.com, and checking out the sidebar. Residents in general can also get access to the resident core curriculum for absolutely free. Again, head over to our website, check out the sidebar. You can get all of these resources from the awesome folks at the OBG Project for absolutely free. All right, y'all. Welcome back. This is Nick. This is Faye. And this is... Creogs Over over coffee. Coffee. All right. So today, um, regrettably, in a way, we're back again talking about COVID and pregnancy um, for our third update on the subject. And today we're going to kind of zero in for the most part on therapeutics. Um, So Faye, what are our learning objectives for today? Yeah, I'm also very sad that we're still talking about this more than a year and a half after our last, uh, our first episode, I should say, about COVID. Um, But our learning objectives today, we are going to provide a quick update on COVID-19 prevention by vaccination. We're going to familiarize ourselves with disease severity stratification with COVID. So what does that mean? We'll discuss protocols for inpatient care that have been suggested by SMFM. And finally, we're going to review the available therapeutics for COVID, their indications and concerns in pregnancy, again, as guided by SMFM. So Nick, why don't you start us off? Talk to us about vaccination. Yeah, so I think this is probably the good news to take away from the podcast today is that kind of the last time we talked to you guys, it was, I think, October. And really, it was just like the very beginnings of vaccination. And we were saying that there's no theoretical harm and that in the initial studies or observational of COVID vaccination, seems like things were safe. But since then, ACOG, SMFM, ASRM, ACCNM, the American College of Nurse Midwives, that is, and AABM, the American Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine, just to name a few, have all endorsed COVID-19 vaccination at any time for folks who are trying to conceive, who are pregnant, or patients who are postpartum and lactating. Um, So really, really phenomenal news. And this is now based on really a wealth of data um, suggesting that these vaccines are safe for conceiving pregnant and postpartum individuals. SMFM has released a really nice consensus document for healthcare providers regarding vaccine counseling during these time periods. Rather than go over a lot of that data, because again, I think that it's really self-explanatory and confirms what we had talked about on previous podcast episodes, check out our previous episodes to kind of go through the early data on vaccine effectiveness. And I think to summarize, Faye, 
we just wholeheartedly recommend vaccination, especially in light of all of the stronger data. So now we got to move on, unfortunately, though, to treatment, because as we're in this next wave with the Delta variant and the Mu variant on its heels, um, we got a lot of questions to talk about and just refresh ourselves on treatment of COVID. Yeah, so I I think we can start off with the first question um, of today, which is, you know, when do patients merit an inpatient admission, right? When is it okay for patients to stay at home? Um, When do they need to come in? And if they do stay at home, when do they qualify for any therapy? And then, of course, we want to answer if the patient needs to be admitted, you know, when do they need therapeutics then? What options are available? And finally, when should we deliver um, a patient for maternal benefit? So, I'm going to break down quickly our decisions to admit, and we can do that by first breaking COVID down into the severity of disease. So there's mild, moderate, severe, and critical disease. Mild disease includes flu-like symptoms, you know, fever, cough, myalgias. It also includes things like anosmia, not being able to smell, but it doesn't include dyspnea, shortness of breath, or abnormal chest imaging if chest imaging is performed. Moderate disease includes symptomatic dyspnea or shortness of breath, but able to maintain um, an O2 saturation of greater than or equal to 94% on room air. It also includes evidence of pneumonia on imaging, um, as well as refractory fever, meaning greater than 39 degrees Celsius um, to things like Tylenol. Severe disease happens when respiratory rate is greater than 30, if the O2 saturation drops below 94% on room air, so if there's basically an O2 requirement for that patient, or if more than 50% of the lung area uh, has disease on imaging. And finally, critical disease includes multi-organ failure or dysfunction or shock or respiratory failure requiring either high-flow nasal cannula or even mechanical ventilation. Kind of knowing those breakdowns in disease, patients with mild disease, so again, that's just like, you know, flu-like symptoms, fever, cough, and myalgias, you don't feel very well. These patients, as well as patients who are asymptomatic, can be safely monitored outpatient with a 10-day self-quarantine from positive testing or from onset of symptoms in accordance with the CDC guidelines. It's patients who, with moderate disease will often require hospitalization owing to the risk of progression, so meaning being able to go on to get severe or critical disease. Patients with severe or critical disease very obviously will merit inpatient admission. So knowing that, Nick, let's talk about those patients that stay outpatient. How are we supposed to manage these patients and make sure that they don't, first of all, fall through the cracks and actually, you know, go on to get more severe disease? Yeah. So if someone's outpatient, I think, as you mentioned, Faye, the danger is that somebody falls through the cracks, particularly with the other things that they need as part of their ongoing prenatal care. SMFM recommends ongoing check-ins from patients to their prenatal care providers to assess symptoms and ensure that there's no concern for disease progression. They actually offer in their care document kind of a questionnaire or things to be able to ask that patients can either do a self-assessment at home, providers or their offices can call to patients to say, hey, do you have any of these symptoms or how are things going? to look for whether they should come in for inpatient or triage evaluation. They also recommend follow-up visits either via in-person visit or telemedicine at least once within two weeks of the diagnosis of COVID. Necessary and indicated medical care beyond this should not be avoided simply because of the positive COVID status. So SMFM in this mentions that if someone tests positive for COVID and they're in need of antenatal testing for some other indication, or they're in need of an ultrasound or a BPP, 
that shouldn't be avoided just because of the positive COVID status. Now, you may need to do some modifications, like this patient needs to be seen in this particular room or in this particular day, in this particular setting, um, but you can't just skip it. You should still give patients the care that they need. Patients with mild or moderate disease kind of are in like a gray zone, particularly those with moderate disease. Again, they may not be sick enough to where you're thinking about admitting them to the hospital, but certainly they're at risk for disease progression. Where this might tip the scales, according to SMFM, is also in considering other comorbidities. So things like existing hypertension or preeclampsia, diabetes, other maternal medical conditions that might predispose to worsening of disease. Those patients, again, are all more prone to acute decompensation. So you really have to kind of weigh the individual patient, what's going on in their pregnancy, what's going on with their own medical history to make that determination of whether they might benefit from inpatient observation um, or therapy. All right, so let's kind of move from there. We'll talk about outpatient therapeutics a little bit later when we talk about pharmacologics in general. Um, I wanna just go ahead and move though to kind of more of these general discussions regarding inpatient care. So say that we're now bringing someone in. Um, what things do we need to do, Faye, in the hospital to ensure that they stay safe? And what are things to consider? Like, you know, do they need to go to the ICU straight away? Um, we hear a lot about proning. Do they need to stay on their belly? What things should we think about? Yeah. So um, first of all, I want to say that many hospitals will have their own protocols and certainly you should follow those protocols. And these are very general principles that we're talking about. So while a pregnant patient is in the hospital, um, of course, you would, you know, get their vital signs and also, you know, consider fetal monitoring as indicated when fetal intervention would be considered. Um, oftentimes, this will be a discussion with the patient or their family members to say whether or not we're actually going to be doing daily NSTs or whether we're just going to be doing doptones. Certainly, it doesn't make sense to be, you know, doing monitoring on a patient who is, you know, pre-viable, right? We should also consider the decision to transfer to ICU level of care, and these things would be things like a rapidly increasing oxygen need to maintain um, their oxygen saturation above 95%. Um, also hypotension, meaning a MAP, a mean arterial pressure, less than 65 despite some measure of fluid resuscitation. Owing to the risk of pulmonary edema, SMFM recommends an initial 500 to 1,000 cc bolus of crystalloids to assess response and then conservative fluid management unless clearly hypovolemic. So these are not patients that we should be flooding and flooding. And then, of course, you know, if the patient needs mechanical ventilation or intubation, obviously this is a patient who needs to go to the ICU. Intubation is recommended if the O2 saturation is greater than 15 liters by nasal cannula or mask, or greater than 40 to 50 liters by high-flow nasal cannula, or greater than 60% FiO2 by Venturi mask, or, of course, if there's altered mental status with an inability to protect that airway. And finally, if there is need for other end organ support. So all these things are super important to consider when you want to think about transferring that patient to the ICU. Now, Nick, you talked a little bit about proning and other things like that. So can we put pregnant people on their bellies? Yeah, you totally can. Um, and it's one of these things that might be surprising, especially as you're doing consults, for instance, for pregnant patients who are in the ICU. Um, proning kind of, I wanted to 
take it back and think a little bit about why proning works for the OBGYN. When you prone someone with acute respiratory distress syndrome, and in this case COVID, it's actually a pretty well-studied intervention. And the way that it works is that you now have the lungs kind of sitting anteriorly that are generally more open or less affected by atelectasis, now getting all of that blood flow directed there by gravity. So you're correcting ventilation perfusion mismatch, basically. So instead of being lying flat on your back with atelectasis lungs and the posterior fields getting blood that's just not getting oxygenated, by flipping someone onto their belly, you may actually get better oxygenation because those anterior lung fields just tend to be more open. Um, and so more blood flow getting there means more oxygen. Um, in pregnancy, though, as you might imagine, it might take a little bit of work to get somebody prone, um, prone and comfortable in particular. So if someone's intubated, you probably will need to use some padding, support devices, um, things to be able to kind of just adjust for pregnancy. And then obviously fetal monitoring becomes a whole other separate issue that can be challenging as well. In Patients who are not intubated, um, they can actually prone themselves to help improve oxygenation. Um, and so that's another thing that you can consider in patients who are either undergoing mechanical ventilation that's non-invasive like BiPAP or CPAP, um, or in someone who's just like on a high flow nasal cannula, you could have them go into like a lateral decubitus position for two hours or go to full prone positioning for a few hours um, to similarly get improvement in oxygenation. What about thromboprophylaxis? Because as soon as they go to the ICU, I know the medicine docs want to immediately get them on heparin. Yeah. So for COVID, thromboprophylaxis is generally recommended given critical illness increases hypercoagulability risks even more. Prophylaxis is generally not recommended after discharge unless there are other specific comorbidities that exist that would require anticoagulation. SMFM actually offers the use of a risk scale. It's called the Improve Risk Score, which we can certainly you know, post onto the website um, or at least a link to it, as well as deferring to clinical expertise to guide the use of pharmacologic prophylaxis once discharged from the hospital. Remember, um, for someone who is pregnant, they are already at an increased risk of thromboembolism, and so adding critical illness on top of that is definitely going to increase that risk. One last thing here that I wanted to ask you about, Nick, is ECMO. Um, you know, we trained at our residency. You know, we were a standalone women's hospital. We obviously did not have the ability to do ECMO at our hospital. And so coming to my current hospital, I kind of had to have to do like this crash course of ECMO. So can you explain to me what is ECMO and why we sometimes use it? Yeah, I mean, it's kind of a funky thing, but ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation. Um, and basically what this is doing is it, it's a machine that will basically do the work of the lungs. So you can oxygenate blood outside of the body. And that's the most typical form of ECMO known as VV ECMO. You can also get some pumping action to correct cardiac dysfunction or augment um, cardiac function itself with VA ECMO. And Again, these are used just in ARDS that's refractory to other methods of therapy. So this is kind of your last buck. There's also other things that you may hear about from the ICU if you're hanging out on rounds with them. There's like VVAV ECMO, VVAA ECMO, like all sorts of stuff. But again, just sticking to VV and VA ECMO, you got most of what you need to know as an OB. In my OB mind, I kind of think of VV ECMO as bypassing the lungs, VA ECMO as bypassing the lungs with a little bit of heart action going on too. That's perfect. 
ECMO is a significant intervention, though. It's got its own set of morbidities and risks, you know, risk of thrombus, risk of stroke, risk of bleeding. And so really you should, again, reserve this for the super significant, severe cases. And in pregnancy, you want to think about this really where one, it might be helpful because it's really your last buck. And two, you don't think delivery can be considered in that present moment, particularly for a pre-viable or periviable gestation where you need some more time before delivery. I'll kind of stop here because I think these conversations are really individualized by institution. Um, and again, your critical care colleagues are going to be the ones that are really driving the ship on this rather than the OBs. Um, so they will talk to you about delivery. You may raise concerns about delivering at that particular juncture. Um, and that's where a conversation about ECMO may come up. All right, so let's move from there to actually talk about things that we can really weigh in a little bit more on, um, which are the therapeutics and when they're indicated. Um, so Faye, there are three drugs that we're going to talk about today. Yeah, so we'll start off first with outpatient things that we can do. So one of those things is monoclonal antibody therapy. Um, you've probably heard about this um, in the news uh, or just in your reading from Regeneron is probably the big name that everyone has been talking about. So monoclonal antibody therapy does have FDA emergency use authorization, and it's indicated for patients over the age of 12 who have mild to moderate COVID-19, who weigh at least 40 kilograms, and are at high risk of progression to severe disease or hospitalization. Those criteria to put them in that high-risk category are things like a BMI of greater than or equal to 35, chronic kidney disease, diabetes, um, or having immunosuppressive therapy. Data is overall limited on their use in pregnancy, but other monoclonal antibodies are generally well-tolerated in pregnancy with no fetal effects, and so they can be used in the appropriate pregnant patients, um, extrapolating the data from other monoclonal antibodies. What about inpatient, Nick? Yeah, so the first drug we actually, as obstetricians, are probably fairly familiar with, and that's dexamethasone. Dexamethasone has been associated in the recovery trial with a decreased risk of mortality in those who require mechanical ventilation, so again, both non-invasive and invasive mechanical ventilation, as well as a small decrease in mortality amongst those who required oxygen, generally speaking. The recommended dosing based on the recovery trial was 6 milligrams of DEX IV or PO daily for 10 days. Um, importantly, again, as part of what we just mentioned is the trial application is really in those who required oxygen. So dexamethasone is not recommended in patients who are not requiring oxygen. And so for pregnancy, this is just going to be amongst patients who are in the hospital. Dexamethasone does cross the placenta measurably, and you may recall that this is the alternative steroid abetamethasone for inducing fetal lung maturity. The fetal lung maturity dosing is 6 milligrams given intramuscularly every 12 hours for four doses. So again, COVID dosing, 6 milligrams daily for 10 days. Fetal lung maturity, 6 milligrams every 12 hours for four doses. So SMFM, obviously says this is proven safe and is appropriate to use in pregnant patients, but if you're at a point where you're considering dosing steroids for fetal lung maturity, you should give that fetal lung maturity dosing for the first 48 hours of therapy and finish the 10-day course at the daily dosing from there. Um, and our last one, Faye, is remdesivir. Yeah, so remdesivir has been associated with a decreased duration of disease in patients requiring oxygen therapy based on the ACT-1 trial 
So it is recommended if the O2 saturation is less than 94% on mechanical ventilation or ECMO. There is no fetal toxicity that is known with remdesivir, and so it can be used on an emergency or compassionate use basis in pregnancy as well. One question I think I get, I I don't want to say a lot, but we have been asked a fair bit, is when should we deliver a hospitalized COVID pregnant patient? Because I think this is a good question, right? At some point, do we feel like delivering this patient, making them not pregnant, is actually going to be better for maternal outcomes? Yeah, I think this is that like maternal fetal seesaw, eh? Um, yeah. No, SMFM's language surrounding this is that in patients with refractory hypoxemia, delivery at or after 32 weeks is reasonable if it's going to allow for further care optimization. The justification for this is basically that there's a low risk of neonatal mortality at 32 weeks. It's only about 0.2% for delivery at that time period. And the risk of major morbidity for 32-weekers delivering at that point is about 8.7%. So those are kind of just justifiably low enough risks where delivery at that point would be considered appropriate um, to advance the interests of the pregnant patient. Um, This often is also logistically more appropriate. Um, A controlled delivery at 32 weeks is definitely more preferable to a perimortem cesarean delivery at 33 plus weeks in the ICU while trying to get into the COVID garb. Again, like while I'll say that that may feel a little strange to say is that we're thinking about this logistically, I think in this pandemic time period, this is just something that you have to think about. I guess kind of to qualify this, SMFM does have language that suggests that really this decision though is individualized. No mechanical ventilation alone, they know, is not an indication for delivery and that proning ECMO and other ventilator methods should be considered, especially if under 30 to 32 weeks gestation, because these do have potential benefits while also potentially giving us some additional fetal benefit um, prior to that point. Okay, Faye, I think that about covers it for COVID as it stands currently. Um, So why don't we try to summarize this update? Sure. So the first thing that we talked about is vaccination, which is the number one thing that folks can do to protect themselves and their fetuses and has been endorsed by many, many, many um, professional organizations over. It is safe um, for patients who want to conceive, who are pregnant, who are postpartum, who are lactating. Um, best of all, SMFM has also released a consensus guideline for healthcare providers uh, regarding vaccine counseling. So definitely check that out. When we think about COVID, one of the first things that we should do is characterize the disease severity. There's mild disease, which is really just flu-like symptoms in the absence of dyspnea, shortness of breath, or abnormal chest imaging. Moderate disease is when you start to get symptomatic dyspnea or shortness of breath, but you're able to maintain an appropriate oxygen saturation on room air, or maybe have refractory fever to acetaminophen. This isn't a mandatory hospitalization at this point, but is definitely one that you should be considering. Severe disease is when respiratory rate is over 30, when you're requiring oxygen to maintain an oxygen saturation or more than 50% of the lung area is involved on imaging. And critical disease is multi-organ failure or shock um, or respiratory failure requiring high flow nasal cannula or mechanical ventilation. And obviously in severe and critical disease, you're going to end up hospitalizing those patients. 
In terms of inpatient care, vital signs and fetal monitoring are indicated if there is fetal intervention that would be considered. In terms of deciding when to transfer the patient to the ICU, we should think about rapidly increasing oxygen needs. If there's hypotension with a MAP of less than 65 despite fluid resuscitation, of course, need for mechanical ventilation or intubation, or need for other end organ support. Remember that proning is possible in pregnancy, though um, potentially we may need to do some more logistical things to make that more comfortable and feasible for a pregnant patient, like more support for that pregnant belly. And of course, um, we do recommend thromboprophylaxis while the patient is in-house. Finally, pregnant patients also can get on ECMO, VV and VA ECMO if they require it with severe ARDS, refractory to other methods of therapy. In terms of therapeutics, we mentioned three drugs today. Outpatient, the only therapy that's available is monoclonal antibody therapy, typically in the form of something known as Regeneron. Again, the indications for this are mild to moderate COVID-19 in patients weighing at least 40 kilograms and who are at high risk of progression to severe disease or hospitalization, criteria being a BMI greater than or equal to 35, chronic kidney disease, diabetes, or a patient on immunosuppressive therapy. Dexamethasone is a treatment available inpatient. Again, dosing is 6 milligrams IV or PO daily times 10 days, though in pregnancy, fetal lung maturity dosing 6 milligrams every 12 hours for four doses should be administered for the first 48 hours um, to achieve fetal lung maturity. Remdesivir is also available on an emergency or compassionate use basis in patients who are requiring mechanical ventilation or on ECMO. In terms of delivering a hospitalized patient, this is usually individualized to the patient, but SMFM does recommend that in patients with refractory hypoxemia, delivery at or after 32 weeks is reasonable if it allows for further optimization of care given the overall low risk of neonatal mortality as well as major morbidity at 32 weeks or after that. Prior to 30 weeks, certainly um, we should still consider things like mechanical ventilation, um, proning, ECMO, and other ventilation methods. And remember, mechanical ventilation alone is not an indication for delivery. All right. I think that does it. So once again, this is Nick. This is Faye. And this has been Creogs Over Coffee. If you enjoy this episode or any of our other episodes, go ahead and go into Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify and give us a five-star rating and review. You can find us online on Twitter at CreogsOverCoffee one on Instagram or Facebook at CreogsOverCoffee, or you can check us out on our Patreon, patreon.com slash CreogsOverCoffee. Send us some love. We'll send you some swag. To find show notes for this show and all of our other episodes, go ahead and go into our website, www.creogsovercoffee.com. And finally, if you have a question for us, a correction to this or any of our previous episodes, or just want to say hi, email us, creogsovercoffee at gmail.com. <laughs>